Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. 5.8 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's dementia, including 78,000 Connecticut residents. And research finds the brain changes associated with the disease are happening 20 years or more before symptoms appear. Today we hear from the Alzheimer's Association about its 2019 report. One finding is despite the prevalence of the disease, only half of seniors 65 and older are offered cognitive assessments by their primary care physician. Coming up, coming up we're going to find out more. We'll also hear from a Connecticut man who is the primary caregiver for his wife who has Alzheimer's. Where do families go in our state for help as they care for a loved one with Alzheimer's or other dementia? More on that later. First, I want to welcome back to the show Christy Koval, Interim Executive Director and Director of Public Policy at the Connecticut Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Christy, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Also in studio with me is Dr. Christina Denise, Geriatric Psychiatrist and Director of the Geriatric Mental Health Clinic at UConn. She's also Assistant Professor of Psychiatry there. Uh, Dr. Denise, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Lucy. So I'll start with Christy. As I mentioned, you're Interim Director of the Connecticut Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Can we, can we talk and just kind of go back to the basics of what Alzheimer's is, because we hear so much about it, especially for uh, many families who know someone in their family uh, that has Alzheimer's or another dementia. So can we talk a little bit about what the disease actually is? Absolutely. Um, So first of all, I think it's important to make the distinction between dementia and Alzheimer's disease. So um, we get that question all of the time. Dementia is the umbrella term. It's the it's the connection of symptoms. Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. It's a progressive degenerative brain disease that causes problems with memory, thinking, and behavior. And as you referenced, 5.8 million people in the United States have Alzheimer's disease, 78,000 here in Connecticut. Many people don't know that Alzheimer's is a fatal disease. Um, You know, people can live with this disease anywhere from four to 20 years. And right now it's the sixth leading cause of death in the United States. When we think about risk factors, uh, I guess a common uh, perception is uh, it's something that only affects uh, senior citizens, so over 65. But I'm wondering with early onset, uh, what are we seeing there in terms of when does that set in and how many people in Connecticut are affected by early onset on Alzheimer's? So um, early onset or what we also refer to as younger onset is getting that diagnosis under the age of 65. Um, I do not have the statistics for Connecticut, but nationwide, we estimate that there's about 200,000 people who have younger onset Alzheimer's. Um, And the disease for somebody who's diagnosed younger, it typically has a faster progression rate. We don't know why that is. When we think about uh, age, you mentioned 65 and older, uh, but what about, is it something that affects more women than men, uh, specific races? Um, Yes, actually women are at higher risk factor uh, because we live longer, um, but also, you know, African Americans are twice as likely and Latinos are one and a half times likely to develop Alzheimer's. 
So, so we're going to be talking more about uh, some of the racial disparities we see uh, in this disease and care uh, across uh, the country. But I want to bring into the conversation Dr. Zidanis because uh, you treat uh, patients uh, with Alzheimer's and other dementia, I believe, at your geriatric mental health clinic. When we talk about the brain uh, changing and degenerative uh, changes, what's happening in there? So Alzheimer's is really classified by two proteins in the brain. So one is called amyloid, which forms these sticky plaques outside of the neurons in the brain. And then within the neurons themselves, we have a protein called tau. And tau makes these tangles inside the neurons that essentially make the neurons degenerate. And we've actually known about these neuropathological changes since 1906. So this is not new research. Dr. Alzheimer did his first autopsy on an Alzheimer's patient in 1906. Um, What we also know about the amyloid plaques in particular is that there's a lot of people walking around who have amyloid in their brain, a significant load, but don't have any cognitive symptoms yet. So we call this the preclinical stage of Alzheimer's. It's estimated that one in eight people in their 60s has uh, amyloid load in their brain, Uh, about one in three people in their 70s, and about one in two people in their 80s are walking around with these changes. So one thing we're looking at in research right now is understanding who are these people who don't have symptoms yet, and what is it going to take for those patients to actually develop symptoms down the road? When we think about uh, risk factors, uh, often uh, we can be alarmed if there's a member in our family that has Alzheimer's. And so um, how likely is it that someone can uh, get Alzheimer's later in life if their mother or their grandmother has Alzheimer's? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the genetic factors playing into Alzheimer's are are interesting. So with this early onset that Christy was talking about earlier, there's a, a subset of people who have what we call an autosomal dominant form of Alzheimer's. So in that case, if you have a parent who's had an early onset Alzheimer's disease and carries one of three particular genes predisposing towards that, you're going to have a one in two chance. But that's very rare. That's about 1% of our patients who have Alzheimer's disease. Beyond that, we know that there's genetic factors such as the apolipoprotein gene, Um, There's probably epigenetic factors, so factors that influence the expression of our genes. And there's probably some environmental factors, too, that play into the the expression of Alzheimer's as people get older. So it's it's very complicated, and we continue to learn more about that genetic predisposition. Again, uh, in studio with us today is Christy Koval, who's Interim Executive Director and Director of Public Policy at the Connecticut Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Also, Dr. Christina Denise, a geriatric psychiatrist and director of the Geriatric Mental Health Clinic at UConn Health. If you have a question or comment, uh, maybe uh, someone you love has been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or uh, you worry about uh, your risk factors, you can join our conversation to 860-275-7266. Christy, you're here because the Alzheimer's Association has this new uh, report. And uh, when we go through the report, it is pretty troubling when you see the risks and the number of Alzheimer's cases that continue to grow. Um, We talked about, you know, we are living longer, but uh, just break down some of the numbers for us. So uh, nationwide, 5.8 million people in the United States are living with Alzheimer's now, um, and that uh, translates to 78,000 people in Connecticut. But by 2025, we estimate that 91,000 Connecticut residents are going to be living with Alzheimer's. And, you know, age remains the greatest risk factor for developing this disease. And as a nation and also as a state, we're living longer. Mm -hmm. So this is why we're seeing this increase. 
Uh, when we think about uh, baby boomers as they age, uh, because we're living longer, how big of a strain does this put on healthcare systems? It puts a tremendous strain on healthcare systems um, because we are living longer, and and the process of of getting diagnosis and getting checked. Um, you know, as we live longer, um, you can have you're at the age of greatest risk. So this definitely pre- presents a great uh, strain on healthcare systems. It also remains the most costly disease. Um, as I mentioned before, somebody can live with this disease an average of four to twenty years, and throughout that disease process, um, the care needs you know needs around. Uh, activities of daily living, home safety, um, you know, being able to care for costs, you know, costs of care are are tremendous. So there's a number of of factors. And coming up, we're going to talk about uh, the caregivers, often the family members who uh, do this work, uh, taking care of a loved one, seeing them change before them and not having uh, the right support. So we're going to talk more about uh, what that looks like uh, here in Connecticut. Uh, But I wanted to go back to Dr. Denise. Uh, Earlier, you'd said that um, you gave statistics about uh, certain people that are walking around with this plaque in their brains now. Does that mean eventually they will get Alzheimer's? Not necessarily. And that's what we're trying to figure out. Is it that if they lived until they were 100 years old, they would eventually present with Alzheimer's symptoms? So we're trying to understand more what it means to have amyloid in the brain. And a lot of the current research is looking at that amyloid and trying to understand, can we clear it out of the brain? If we are able to clear it out of the brain, does that mean that those patients will not have Alzheimer's disease? And there's neuroimaging techniques that are being developed to be able to identify this earlier. So my hope would be that in the future, just like people go and get colonoscopies every 10 years, people would be able to go and get a brain scan to see if they have this amyloid load, and we would have an intervention that could clear it out of the brain. Mm. But you're a doctor, so you know there's that saying, if you don't trouble, trouble, trouble doesn't trouble me. Uh, How many people really want to know that this is happening to them? Because it is very scary because as of now, we don't – there isn't a cure. And we'll be talking about that a little bit later about what kind of of medicine and and other treatment is out there. But how do you encourage people to think about this early and to want to know what they can do to help uh, deal with the disease if it is something that's likely down the road? Well, it, you know, you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a very scary thought to think that one would lose one's memory and one would lose one's independence and ability to take care of oneself down the road. So a lot of people are hesitant. And I think that's part of the reason why this dialogue is not necessarily happening in as many doctor's visits as perhaps it should be, because there's a certain stigma and a certain fear attached to it. Um, but what we try to do at our integrated memory disorders program at UConn is say, look, this is a big crisis in the country in terms of taking care of these people. And it's going to be better for patients to know earlier rather than later. do they have Alzheimer's disease? Do they have some other form of dementia? And if so, what does that mean in terms of how they should be taking care of themselves now? What does that mean in terms of future financial planning, legal planning, planning for who's going to be a caregiver down the road? And as Christy mentioned, this is a very gradually progressing disease in many cases. Um, so there's there's time and space to think about those things. Um, but I think the sooner those issues are addressed, the, the better for the patients and their families. Christy Koval, uh, through the new report from the Alzheimer's Association. What do we know about uh, the number of seniors, again, 65 and older? Um, how are they being assessed when they go to the doctor? So um, in our facts and figures report, we included this year uh, a special report on the detection. And basically what we found were 82 seniors believe that it's important to have their thinking and memory checked, yet only 16% are getting regular 
cognitive assessments. And there's a variety of factors around this, um, you know, in terms of going to the doctor and asking the right questions or disclosing that information, but also the clinicians, you know, needing to have the time and maybe doing that sort of deeper dive in terms of what's going on with this person. It's something that we need to do some work on. When you uh, uh, survey physicians, um, for those uh, seniors who aren't getting the cognitive assessment, what are some of the reasons? It could be that somebody is not presenting um, with those symptoms. It could be timing issues. Um, it could be a number of factors. Um, you know, maybe the caregiver is not disclosing. Uh, it, it could be a number of reasons why. Um, we just know that you know early detection and diagnosis of this disease um, not only helps the person living with the disease to plan for the future, but it also helps the caregiver to put those resources in place. So we know we need to do a better job in terms of early detection and diagnosis. Uh, When uh, you look at what are the requirements under Medicare, uh, seniors should be getting these uh, cognitive evaluations of cognitive function, but I believe your report found only about one in three seniors are even aware that that's something that uh, doctors should be doing. So uh, how do you bridge that uh, gap? So we need to do more awareness. This is actually a relatively new uh, benefit in the Medicare annual wellness visit. This was just passed, um, you know, a couple of years ago. So I think right now a lot of people still don't know about this. So we need to do a better job at educating not only the physicians, but educating the people who are eligible for this to take advantage of it. You can join our conversation here on Where We Live as we focus in on Alzheimer's dementia. The number to call 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Sarah's calling from Southeastern Connecticut. Sarah, go ahead. Hi. Um, my father, in late in life, was diagnosed with Lewy body dementia. And I just wondered um, if there was research on that. It's, pre- it's predominantly in men. Well, thank you for your question. That's a good transition to uh, learning about the other dementias out there. So let's start with Louie. Okay, so Lewy body dementia is what we would call a Parkinson's disease spectrum illness. Um, Lewy body is different than Alzheimer's. It's not characterized by those amyloid plaques and then the tau tangles that happen inside the neurons. Um, it's, it's a different kind of uh, protein. It's called the Lewy body that you would find inside the brain if you performed an autopsy. Um, some symptoms associated with Lewy body dementia, although there is a gradual Uh, cognitive decline like we would see in Alzheimer's disease. We also see some very distinctive symptoms. So these patients develop Parkinson's features like slowed gait, stooped posture, perhaps tremor. It's also characterized by very vivid visual hallucinations, which is classic for Lewy body. Um, These are very detailed. My patients can tell me that they see animals in the room, people in the room. They can describe what they're wearing Um, And oftentimes our patients are not alarmed by these visual hallucinations. They just kind of accept that these are there, Um, whether or not they have insight into them being hallucinations or they believe that they are that they are real. Lewy body is a little bit different, too, in terms of level of awareness. So whereas Alzheimer's has a pretty steady cognitive decline over time. There's a little bit more variability with Lewy body dementia and that these patients can have moments of lucidity or they could have moments where they're more confused. And that variation can happen within a day. It can happen over several days. Um, As an example, I had a patient who was about five or six years into Lewy body dementia uh, who would be confused most of the time, but would have these moments of clarity where he would say to his wife, I know something terrible is happening to me. 
and I'm, I'm very sorry, but I don't know what I can do to fix it. And that was truly heartbreaking for her. It was heartbreaking for me as his doctor um, to see him have those moments where he understood that and then go back to his level of, of cognitive impairment, memory impairment. And this impacts men more than women, the Lewy body dementia? Is that... I actually don't know that statistic. I have had probably within my clinic an equal distribution of men and women. Mm. Uh, earlier, before we took the call, we were talking with Christy about uh, the importance of assessments and, and some of the things that can get in the way of the PCP quick visit mm-hmm. uh, and whether uh, seniors are getting uh, uh, looking at uh, their fun- cognitive function. So as a geriatric psychiatrist, when you hear that, like, what are some ways uh, to make sure that that assessment is happening? Just better training and awareness? Uh, So I think training is very important. Um, We are doing some initiatives with our medical students at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. Um, We've been bringing in patients with Alzheimer's disease and their care partners to talk to small groups of medical students about their experiences, because I think that one-on-one connection is so important for medical students to understand what this disease is like for patients and their families. And I think establishing that awareness, number one, is very important. Um, in addition to that, yeah, we're trying to educate more about shorter cognitive screens that can be done during an office visit. So historically, there's been 30-point um, questionnaires that would take 10, 15 minutes to complete in an office visit. And that's a long time when you only have half an hour with your patient or 20 minutes with your patient. Um, The Alzheimer's Association has a whole section for physicians on their website that shows shorter cognitive assessments that can be done in three minutes, Um, you know, asking people to draw a clock and remember three words. That can be integrated very quickly into a visit. Um, So we're trying to educate primary care doctors and, and others in the community about these alternative assessments. And briefly, Christy Koval, again, Interim Director of the Alzheimer's Association, the Connecticut chapter, uh, I believe the Alzheimer's Association is uh, introducing or planning on introducing a bill to work on on getting uh, medical professionals to assess seniors better. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. We actually, the bill's already been introduced. It's actually already been voted out of the aging committee at the state legislature. It's raised Bill 827. And basically what we are asking for this bill to do is to uh, educate physicians, physician assistants, APRNs, and nurses with dementia education as a condition of license renewal. Uh, Massachusetts became the first state to pass this in the country last year. We are hoping to become the second. Uh, Rhode Island and Maine also have legislation uh, pending in their uh, in their legislature as well. And what we're wanting to do is make sure that people are getting educated in terms of license renewal so they can help recognize the signs and symptoms of dementia and really sort of bridge that gap. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, today we're focusing in on Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, the latest report from the Alzheimer's Association showing uh, that 5.8 million Americans are living with Alzheimer's. That number expected to grow substantially over the next three decades. Uh, coming up, we're going to focus more on the caregiver aspect. Uh, are you one of them uh, taking care of a spouse or loved one uh, with Alzheimer's or other dementia? We'd want to hear from you. And we're going to talk more about the supports for caregivers. Uh, in studio with me, Christy Koval, interim Executive Director of the Connecticut Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association, and Dr. Christina Denise. Uh, she's a geriatric psychiatrist and director of the Geriatric Mental Health Clinic at UConn Health. Here's the number, 860-275-7266, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
This is Where We Live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've heard that the number of people with Alzheimer's dementia continues to grow across the nation. Caring for them is costly, and often it's family members who are providing the bulk of unpaid care. According to the Alzheimer Association's new report, nearly half of these caregivers are caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's or other dementia. There are 178,000 of them in Connecticut, and one of these caregivers is joining me now in studio. I want to welcome Dick Helstein, who is uh, caring for his wife, Sue, who was diagnosed with Alzheimer's uh, five years ago. Dick, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's very nice to be here. Uh, Again, I mentioned that your wife, Sue, has Alzheimer's. How far back did you or Sue realize that something was going on? Well, I would say it was about six years ago that we started seeing her forget things much more regularly right now. She had trouble reading. She misplaced things. And even socially, she just didn't feel as comfortable being there. And so that was a time, and we've talked a lot about misdiagnosis here. It was a time when the doctors sent us down to New York to talk to a specialist. And he said, no, it's just some mild impairment. There's no problem at all. And she doesn't have Alzheimer's. So we went back home, and we were very relieved on one hand, but very confused on the other, because we were seeing activity and symptoms which were really reflective of Alzheimer's. And so we went through an entire year without knowing that she had Alzheimer's or having that diagnosis. Can I ask, when you went down to see the specialist and uh, he or she told you that your wife doesn't, has all, all, ha- doesn't have Alzheimer's, what kind of assessment did the specialist do? How did, they, how did they know? Well, this particular one just went and asked her a couple of questions. It was a very short meeting. It was maybe 15 minutes to half an hour. And he was very well known and he felt that he knew exactly what Alzheimer's was. And it was a very unfortunate situation. And so we went down a year later and then took a whole battery of tests. We took four hours of tests. They also did some physical testing as well. And they came out of that saying, we're 90, 92% sure that she has Alzheimer's. Uh, how did you respond to that news? And how did your wife? Well, we kind of knew that was coming. But it's like when it really does come, we were really <laughs> depressed. We were grieving. Our family was grieving, and that lasted for about three weeks on this one couch. And then we decided, and Sue was so great, my wife, in this, that where we were right now was not so terrible. I think with this disease, the real issue is that people project as to what it's going to be and take that upon them at the time itself. At this point, we could be doing so much together. And so Sue picked up and said, I'm going to start taking German, which he had done in high school. I'm going to do tap dancing. I'm going to take violin. We all went on walks together. We did so much as a couple that we could do and really tried to make every day count. So you didn't stop living once the diagnosis came? No, that's one of the most important things. And one of the other things, once that diagnosis comes, that's so helpful is that as the caregiver, there are certain responsibilities that you have. I started, excuse me, developing a living will for Sue that she was able to work with me on as well and um, a special long-term care policy so that um, she was going to be taken care of in the future as well as powers of attorney. So um, if anything happened, I would be your power of attorney. So there's just so much you can do when you get that diagnosis rather than sitting on the couch as we first did. A lot of planning and action that takes place, but who's supporting you, Dick? What was so wonderful is, first of all, our family. We've got four married children, and they became caregivers not only for my wife but for me. 
they wanted to make sure they were not going to lose two parents. And they saw the strain that was being put on me. So they would come in and take time in order to make that happen. But one of the most wonderful groups, very honestly, was the Alzheimer's Association because we went there and they had a group called the GAP, and that stands for Giving Alzheimer Purpose. It was a group of people who had just been diagnosed. There were nine couples. We all met together, and we talked about what it was like, both as a caregiver and as a patient. We cried. We laughed. We have now been together for five years, and there's a great deal of trust and love in getting together as a result. Mm -hmm. Uh, Christy Koval again is here from the Connecticut chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Uh, Dick mentioned having a caregivers group to provide that support. Uh, but before we learn a little bit more about that, just uh, walk us through what Dick said about uh, once they got the diagnosis and then the steps that they took uh, to help plan for the future, similar to what you are recommending uh, people when they get the diagnosis to do. Can you walk us through some of those steps again? Absolutely. And I think, um, to Dick's point, the most important thing that somebody can do when they get diagnosed is to reach out for help. This is not something that you should do alone. Um, you know, reach out to somebody like the Alzheimer's Association. Find out what resources are available because there are a number of resources available. For our organization, we provide information and referral, education and training. We have a 24-hour helpline uh, for questions. We also provide educational courses free of charge throughout the state. These are things on legal and financial issues, communication and behaviors. We run more than 100 support groups around the state for people who are caregivers, but also we run groups, these gap groups, giving Alzheimer's purpose for people in the early stages of the disease as well as their care partners. And we also offer um, you know, online resources as well. So um, if people want to call and they have questions about you know, getting diagnosed or they actually need um, more institutionally-based care, we can help them. Uh, Dr. Denise, who's with uh, the Geriatric Mental Health Clinic at UConn, again, uh, you're treating uh, individuals that have Alzheimer's or other dementia. How closely are you working uh, with organizations like the Alzheimer's Association to connect people with resources? It's so important. So as I mentioned before, if you're thinking about legal planning, for example, on the Alzheimer's Association website, there's a whole list of what sort of um, documents you need to bring when you go first visit a lawyer to talk about, um, you know, creating a living will, those sort of resources. And the, the 800 number that they have for caregivers as well is so important because um, when I have patients on the weekend whose loved one is sundowning or meaning they be, they're becoming restless at the end of the day, becoming agitated, and they need somebody to talk to right away, um, that's a tremendous resource for them as well to have somebody available to walk them through um, how, to, how to take care of their loved one at that time. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Maureen is calling from Plainville. Maureen, go ahead. Um, hi, I was, I was calling. I was, um, my husband is now 60 years old. He was diagnosed two years ago with early onset Alzheimer's, and um, he's, he's currently in a clinical trial but, um, you know, I've done, like, all, we've done all of the, um, the lawyer stuff with the powers of attorney and the will and all that. And, you know, um, but we have, uh, you know, whereas a lot of people have older children, um, um, our kids are fairly young. Um, they're in their early 20s, and I have a senior in high school who's looking to go to college. And so I have... Um, a lot of uh, debt that we have accrued in putting kids through school and um, a mortgage still. And so I guess I was 
just wondering, and I, I think you kind of talked a little bit about it, but um, who and how financially, you know, somebody, I mean, I, I've worked my whole life. My husband's worked his whole life. We're both college educated. You know, we've done everything the right way, and we just, you know, don't have a, a ton of money in order to provide care down the road. Well, thank you, Maureen, for your call. I'm sorry to hear of your husband's diagnosis, but uh, maybe Christy Koble from the Alzheimer's Association uh, can help you uh, with that question. Maureen, that is a a very good question, and and you are, you know, not alone in in your situation, particularly with younger children. Um, You know, AARP did a a study recently, and we are seeing this sort of sandwich generation with, you know, younger children, millennial caregivers. Um, You know, I encourage you to um, reach out to our helpline, which is 800-272-3900. Talk to one of our folks on the helpline to see if there's other resources that maybe we can explore with you that maybe they're untapped resources, um, particularly because your husband has younger onset. Can you say that helpline again? Yes, it's 800-272-3900, or people can go on our website, which is alz.org slash ct. Uh, Dick, did you want to add anything? Because again, you've been with uh, this uh, support group, and you are—you said you're lucky that you have four married children, so there's a support network there. But I'm sure you've run run into uh, people that have Maureen's story, where they still are uh, really reeling from not only the diagnosis, but you know, just life situation that they've got to deal with every day. Absolutely, it is such a difficult situation. Um, one of the things that we found that was really helpful that the Alzheimer's Association had was a list of elder care lawyers who really specialize in this kind of area and really were helpful for me in deciding where I should hold money, how I should change that, and what to be doing with the kids as well. So that became a wonderful resource for me that I was able to use financially in that way. And uh, Christy, uh, the elder care attorneys, would they be able to help someone like Maureen, whose husband's early onset, late 50s? Absolutely, absolutely. We provide a whole listing of resources of folks all around the state that do anything from elder law attorneys to, as I mentioned, institutional-based care, diagnostic centers, uh, geriatricians and physicians. So, you know, we will make recommendations on who people should contact. Rachel's calling from Watertown. Uh, Rachel, go ahead with your question. Hi, uh, I'm a 48-year-old woman, and my father um, currently has dementia. He's going to be 80 next month, and his father um, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and and um, and died from that. And I'm wondering, you know, I have some symptoms. I've noticed some difficulty in remembering certain things, and um, I'm just wondering what sort of normal aging versus when should I be concerned about some of the things I'm experiencing? You know, a lot of my friends and I talk about this and we experience some similar things. So I just don't know um, what, what, you know, what should I be looking for? What should I be doing at my age? That's an excellent question, Rachel. Uh, thankfully, we have a doctor in the studio, Dr. Christina Denise, uh, a geriatric psychiatrist. So let's talk about that. What's normal? and what uh, is abnormal and they should worry about maybe getting an assessment. Thanks for that question. Yeah, this comes up often in our clinic where we have the quote-unquote worried well who, you know, may be noticing some changes and they're not sure, could this be normal aging or could this be something more serious like Alzheimer's or another type of dementia? And as Dick mentioned, sometimes even with an initial assessment, doctors aren't sure. Um, You know, if somebody has a very high level of education, for example, maybe they're acing all the tests that they're being given. Um, So as people get older, there are certain changes cognitively that we do see. Um, So some level of forgetfulness is appropriate. People lose their keys and that happens and it doesn't mean that they have Alzheimer's disease. Um, 
Where we start worrying is when there's some impact of those changes on their functional ability. So are they making mistakes financially when they've been balancing their checkbook themselves um, for for many, many years? Are they making mistakes while driving? Are they making mistakes managing their medications? Um, Those sort of things raise an eyebrow and make us think, okay, we need to do a little bit more of an assessment. But I think even if you're in your 40s and you're noticing a change, it's completely appropriate to discuss with your doctor because there's also medical reasons why people could have changes with their memory. So for example, if somebody has undiagnosed hypothyroidism, they might be a little bit more um, cognitively foggy. And if they're treated with uh, some medications for their thyroid, that could help. If they have B12 deficiency, that can cause some changes with memory as well. Um, So I think it's never too early to discuss with your doctor because there could be something else going on that can be pretty easily remedied as well. Uh, I wanted to just follow up. Uh, we heard from a caller uh, from New Milford um, who says that sometimes just getting a diagnosis from a doctor is so challenging uh, where doctors refuse to even provide the diagnosis. Um, and she also wants to hear solutions for low and middle class residents in terms of navigating their health care. I mean, who wants to take that question? So the model we have at UConn Health Center, we have an integrated memory disorders program. So um, this is paid for by insurance, um, like a regular doctor's visit. Uh, You can come in and meet with a geriatrician who specializes in the care of older adults. Although if you're having cognitive difficulty, you don't have to be uh, uh, over 65 to to receive that care, Um, where you can undergo a basic cognitive assessment in clinic. You can get the lab work done if it's appropriate we can order MRIs or other brain imaging to see if maybe there's some changes to the tiny blood vessels in the brain that's contributing. Um, so, so these are things that, that can be done um, in, in health centers, certainly. Uh, Deborah is calling from New Haven. Deborah, go ahead. Oh, hello. Um, yes, my wife was diagnosed when she was 60, and um, I was, of course, her main caregiver, and she passed away at 68. Um, so there's very much to say about that, but I'm going to stay with the caregiving part and how it, it was very exhausting and very expensive. Um, so the first thing I want to say is go get an elder care lawyer now. Don't wait for anybody to be sick. But the reason I'm calling is keeping her at home after a while was really hard for everyone, the children, me. So... We finally put her in a home, and I'm calling about the stigma attached to that. Oh, like I didn't love her enough. Her kids didn't care enough, and that was a that, in my opinion, is a real myth. She was better off in a home. She didn't have to try so hard to understand what people were saying. She went into the home and relaxed, and she wasn't the only one. So that's that's. Go ahead. Sorry. That is a good point to raise where uh, families don't have to feel guilty if they try to take care of a loved one, but the best place for them would be like a memory support uh, unit or another type of nursing home. Christy. Yeah. So and to that point, you know, 70 percent of folks who are living with this disease are being cared for in the home. But because this is a progressive degenerative disease, oftentimes there does come a point in which the family can't do it 
by themselves at home. There are a number of very good facilities, either assisted living facilities, uh, skilled nursing facilities, which are also referred to as nursing homes, that specialize in this. And it is really okay. It's okay because it supports the caregiver. So the caregiver can continue to come and spend time with their loved one as their partner, their spouse, their their child, and allow professionals to be able to, to take care of that person. Dick Helstein, whose uh, wife has Alzheimer's. You know, one of the things that I found that really is an issue is that as a caregiver, you don't realize the strain that's on you, and you begin to go into it, and your world becomes smaller and smaller, and the focus is more and more on the person you're giving care to, almost to the extent that your health, your life really begins to go downhill. So it's really important to have some outside people, whether they're your children or friends, really begin to assess that and say, this is taking a toll not only on this other person, your patient, your wife, your father, your mother, but it's also taking a terrible toll on you. And we got to the point where it had taken such a toll on me, and it was a point where my wife didn't even realize she was home anymore. So we put her into a memory care. Mm. But my guess is we probably should have done that six to nine months earlier because she was in far better shape by being in that memory care unit. Dr. Zinnis, I wanted to end with you because, uh, again, you treat uh, individuals with Alzheimer's and other dementia. Um, Did you want to add a little to what um, they were saying about uh, the importance of feeling like you need to, if you need help, that it's okay to look for a memory care unit or a nursing home, that it's not something you should feel guilty about? Absolutely. So there's a physical and emotional demand and and a a toll on our caregivers. Um, What we know is that caregivers' immune systems can be affected. So I'll frequently have caregivers bringing their loved ones in to see me who constantly have a cold or even worse have had a heart attack or a stroke or or subjective sleep problems associated with uh, the stress that they're under. We know that those immune systems can be affected up to three years after that caregiving role ends. Um, The rates of major depression are so much higher among dementia caregivers. We see it depending on the stage of illness of their loved one. Caregivers can have 30 to 80 percent rates of major depression compared to 6 to 9% in the general population. Um, so it's really important for caregivers not only to be caring for their loved one, but to be focusing on their own physical and emotional health as well. We don't have uh, too much time left, but uh, I'd be remiss to not ask uh, for a disease that right now is incurable. What what kind of a message of hope can you give to listeners who are dealing with this, Dr. Zanise, in terms of the treatment options that are out there? So currently, there's two FDA-approved medications that don't cure the disease. They don't stop the progression of the disease, but but they may, to some extent, slow the progression of the disease. There's a lot of research happening. There's researchers around the country who are diligently committed to pursuing different avenues. Um, As I said, a lot of the research is focused on early detection and and treating what we call the preclinical stage so that eventually people will not be getting the disease at all. It will happen. It might not happen in the next five years, but I am confident it will happen. And Christy Koval, uh, listening to the doctor talk about this uh, when listeners hear about miracle supplement, uh, you know, miracle supplements uh, to help uh, their loved ones, don't buy it. You know, right. And you want to go with really good research. And, you know, the Alzheimer's Association is the largest private nonprofit funder of research in the country. And on a hopeful note, Alzheimer's research 
funding at the NIH has quadrupled since 2011. This is in part due to our advocates really, you know, saying we need to advocate more for research. There is more happening right now in the research space than there has been in years. And a lot of this research now is focusing on lifestyle interventions and what can we do to help with people who are at the age of greatest risk for developing this disease. We'll have to end it there, but not the last time we'll be talking about Alzheimer's and other dementia. Thank you, Christy Koval, Interim Executive Director of the Connecticut Chapter of the Alzheimer's Association. Thanks, Christy. Thank you so much. Also, Dick Helstein, thank you for sharing your story. It's not easy to talk about uh, you know, someone in, that you love on the radio, but we appreciate your perspective. My pleasure. Thank you. And Dr. Christina Denise, who's a geriatric psychiatrist and director of the Geriatric Mental Health Clinic at UConn. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, coming up, we're going to hear why there are certain minority groups uh, in this country that would have a, a higher risk for Alzheimer's dementia than white Americans on a per capita basis. We're going to hear about that, including efforts to get African Americans and Hispanics to enroll in research studies. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been focusing on Alzheimer's dementia today, and joining our conversation now is Dr. Lisa Barnes, professor and cognitive neuropsychologist at the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center in Chicago. Dr. Barnes, welcome to our show. Good morning. Uh, We were just talking with the Alzheimer's Association. Their annual report states that older African Americans and Hispanics are more likely on a per capita basis than older white Americans to have Alzheimer's or other dementias. So how big of a disparity are we talking about, Dr. Barnes? Um, It's a pretty big disparity. Um, Like you say, about two times more likely for African Americans and about one and a half times more likely for um, older Latinos. And the, the issue is that we don't really know why this is the case. And so there's intensive research um, going on to try to figure out why we see this huge disparity. Earlier, we were learning about some of the risk factors, and heart health is is one of the risk factors, looking at hypertension, diabetes, obesity, uh, these risk factors that are conditions that we see at a higher rate among African Americans and Hispanic populations. So when you're doing your research, what are you noticing about uh, where these disparities exist and uh, how people um, are living, uh, what's going on in their lives that may impact their diagnosis later? Yeah, um, you know, those risk factors are definitely playing a part in um, in, uh, these minority populations as well, because they happen to have a higher prevalence of those kinds of vascular conditions like, um, you know, heart disease and and diabetes and and other vascular conditions, hypertension. And so, um, but even when you control for those factors and, you know, these well-controlled studies, you still see the disparity. So some of the other things that we're looking at um, are lifestyle factors, um, in particular um, stressors that people may be um, living under. We know that minority populations live in very different conditions in our country, um, and they experience more social stressors. So we're looking at things like um, experiences of discrimination, poverty, neighborhood conditions, and trying to see how those things might impact not only um, the disease, but also just how people age over time. 
Uh, when we look at Alzheimer's across uh, many different populations, it appears that a lot of the research focuses on white populations. And so um, how are you getting at that um, with your, uh, your research uh, lab uh, in Chicago? And what are some of the factors that are keeping, say, African-Americans and Hispanics from even wanting to enroll in research studies? That's a great question. Um, probably most of what we have learned about the disease, we've learned in the majority white population. And so there's been intense efforts across the country, really, to um, amp up our recruitment for minority populations so we can try to get more people enrolled in studies. And so in Chicago, um, I have a, a, a very large study where I've been following African-Americans over the age of 65 since about 2004. And what we do is we enroll people um, from the community who don't have a diagnosis of dementia, and we follow them over time um, to document their lifestyle factors, to measure their memory performance. And then we, we try to get their brain when they die. Um, we have an education program where we try to um, increase awareness about why it's important to participate in studies that include brain donation. Um, and, you know, there are similar studies across the country trying to do um, Um, some of these things. But I think the main, one of the main reasons that contributes to a a low rate of participation is um, this general mistrust Mm -hmm. that minorities have in the medical establishment and in research in particular. And it's, you know, for good reasons because of some of the past abuse that's happened to many of these minority populations. So we spend a lot of time trying to um, overcome the mistrust and and strengthen relationships and and build trust so that people can uh, feel comfortable participating in our studies. You mentioned uh, mistrust. When we look back at history, uh, uh, research on African-Americans that uh, raised lots of ethical questions today, looking at the Tuskegee syphilis experiment for one, is this something that's on the minds of African-Americans you're talking to in Chicago? Yeah, you know, I, it varies. You know, there are definitely um, some of the older people in our studies who remember the Tuskegee study and, and probably still, you know, have some impact from that study. Um, but there are other things that happen, you know, beyond Tuskegee that really um, keeps people in the, in the dark about research. You know, people don't um, tend to, um, to go to them and ask for their advice about, you know, about the questions that we're asking, or they don't go back and give the results when they, you know, when they finish the study. All of these things contribute to this continual um, perpetuation of mistrust. So we try to, you know, to really overcome all of those by really working hand in hand with the community and, you know, going back and making sure even before we ask them anything, we give first. You know, we're in the community, we're volunteering, we're, you know, we're showing our face so that they know we care. And then as we go on and we get results and we learn new things, we're continuously going back to the community to share what we've learned. And all of these things really help um, because, you know, Tuskegee is there, it's in the past, but people remember it. But still, if we don't... 
if we don't make efforts to fix the wrongs of the past, it's just going to be there like an old sore. That's interesting. So instead of waiting for uh, a resident to uh, see a posting at a university that they're looking for people to participate in a research study, you're going into the community informing them about what Alzheimer's is and the, uh, you know, the necessity or positives for joining in on a research study because there's so uh, little data on African-Americans related to this disease. Exactly, because we found, you know, research has shown that if you just hang a flyer in your clinic and, you know, and, and try to recruit for your study, you're not going to get a lot of minority participation. That's just not how people enroll. And so we have found that to be, you know, more successful, you have to go to where people are. So, you know, I have relationships. I have, we have a team here. And people, we go out and we give presentations in churches and community buildings and senior organizations. And sometimes it's not about Alzheimer's disease. Maybe we might talk about healthy aging, or we might talk about, you know, diabetes or heart disease. We talk about things that the community wants to hear about, and then we, you know, we bring up this um, issue of research and the importance of research and why it's so critical that minorities participate. Uh, you're in uh, Illinois. We're here in Connecticut. For our listeners who uh, may be uh, minorities who might have a family history of Alzheimer's, what would you say to them to, to get them involved in research or taking the next step just to learn more? I think the, the first step is to really be proactive. And, you know, since I'm not there, <laughs> um, you can, you know, every state has an Alzheimer's association. And I would contact them first, and they can hook you up to some researchers in your area. I am sure that there are, you know, credible research going on in Connecticut area. And I, I actually have colleagues there. So I think um, just reaching out and not waiting, you know, for the symptoms to manifest. Because as I heard in the last segment, we are focusing more on early detection before the symptoms even appear. So we really need healthy volunteers to be in these studies. So if you have a history in your family or you're concerned, you know, don't wait. Just pick up that phone and call somebody so that you can find a study in your area. Uh, we're almost out of time, but we should um, mention uh, in the past we've talked about the APOE gene, which is a good predictor of higher chance of Alzheimer's in white populations. But that's not necessarily something that uh, has been found yet in, in black populations, uh, Dr. Barnes. Another reason why people should be enrolling in these research studies? Exactly. That's the most well-established risk factor in whites. And um, we really have not found that that's the case in African-Americans. Um, the data are a little bit more mixed for Latinos. But, you know, it could be that there's, you know, a lot of mixture in African-Americans, you know, um, mixed with other races. And that could sort of dampen the, the effect. But if we don't have people in the studies, we would never know that. So that's just another reason to get involved. Well, Dr. Lisa Barnes, it's been a pleasure to speak to you. Sorry, it's so short, but we appreciate your perspective. Professor and cognitive neuropsychologist at the Rush Alzheimer's Disease Center in Chicago. Dr. Barnes, thank you. Thank you. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Seth Blair on the phones today. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. As always, thanks for listening.